leads us. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. We'll be starting in verse 43. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black Bible in the pew in front of you. If not, you can even just Google it. Google Mark chapter 14. 43. Have you ever heard the phrase, kiss of death, before? Kiss of death. I'm sure you have. It's pretty common in mafia culture, in movies, and in TV. You know, most famously, it comes from Godfather 2, where Al Pacino grabs the man's face, and I'm, I was going to do a, an impression, but I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to subject you to this. But he says, I know it was you, Fredo. You broke my heart. You broke my heart. And then, famously, he grabs him and kisses him on the lips. This is the kiss of death. It's a, pop, a popular symbol in pop culture, but the phrase uh, is actually older than you might know. It predates mafia movies and mafia TV shows by several millennia. The phrase actually comes from the text that we are studying this morning. It's not found in the text, but it comes from the story that we are studying this morning. So let's read it for ourselves. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief, chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would be with us in a special way as we let your word do its work in our lives. Amen. Before we look more at this kiss of death theme in this text, we should take a moment to remember where we are in the book of Mark. Last week, we saw that Jesus and the disciples were in the Garden of Gethsemane, and things did not end on a positive note. Things were looking very bleak. The disciples couldn't even stay awake and watch and pray. Worst of all, Peter, who just the week, you know, last week in our text, but the hour really prior in the story, was championing the fact that he would never abandon Jesus. He would never fall away, even if everyone else did. Even if he had to die, he wouldn't do it. Peter fell asleep three times, foreshadowing his triple denial that is still yet to come in the story. Jesus, as he is considering the reality of the wrath of God that is about to come crashing down on him on the cross, 
it is crushed to the earth. Fear, anxiety overtaking him for what is to come. But then at the end of last week's text, we saw in verses 41 and 42 that a flip switched. Jesus looked up and he saw Judas. And it was as if he realized the time has come. The beginning of the end is near for him. After Judas would betray him, all the other dominoes would fall into place, leading to his death on the cross. This morning's text opens up with Judas coming up to Jesus with a posse, if you will. Mark here just calls them a crowd. We might call them a lynch mob. They have clubs and you know pitchforks. That's not entirely historically accurate, but torches, and they are ready to grab Jesus and to arrest him in the middle of the night. Verse 43 tells us that the delegation that came came from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, which if you remember was the three parties of the Sanhedrin, the Jews who ruled the temple in Jerusalem. There also may have been Roman centurions present. John 18 says that there were soldiers there during the arrest. It seems unlikely that those who were present there to arrest Jesus hadn't heard of everything that had been going on. Ever since Jesus stepped foot into Jerusalem, he has been wreaking havoc, flipping over tables, cracking whips in the temple, calling out the religious leaders. And here he says that in the text. He says, day in and day out, I've been preaching in the temple. It's also unlikely that most of the people here hadn't at least seen Jesus at some point as he's causing his commotion. Although there were well over two million people in the city limits of Jerusalem, not all of them were coming into the temple. It's possible that some of the people here hadn't seen Jesus. And even if they had seen him, it might have been from a distance. And here, as they go to arrest Jesus at night, the odds of them being able to distinguish Jesus from his disciples at night, slim. So Judas had a plan. The plan was to indicate exactly who Jesus was amongst the men by kissing him. That was the sign. That way you'll know who he is. And you can grab him. We can assume, because Mark doesn't actually give us much detail, that it didn't take very long for the crowd to grab Jesus and to place him under arrest. But a couple of things happened before they finally carried Jesus away. Someone standing next to Jesus or with Jesus grabbed a sword, swung it in an attempt to try to defend Jesus. Other gospel accounts give us more details about what happened here. John tells us that it was Peter who indeed swung the sword, and Jesus tells him some stuff, put it away. That's not the way that we're going to go about this. But Mark, in typical Markan fashion, doesn't really give us any details. As a matter of fact, he doesn't even tell us the way that Jesus responded to this sword-swinging vigilante, Peter. Maybe when we come back through the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of John, we'll talk more about that. But keeping with the spirit of Mark, we'll just note it and move on. The second thing that happens before the crowd finally sees Jesus and walks away with him is this. Jesus rebukes them. He rebukes the very people who are there to arrest him. In verse 48, Jesus says, Why are you guys coming after me with clubs and swords and torches like I'm some kind of Frankenstein criminal? You could have grabbed me any day this week while I was preaching in the temple, and yet you didn't. Why do you think they arrested Jesus this way? Why do you think they sent a mob to arrest Jesus at night? 
Do you know that in many third world countries, it's still very common to plan big arrests at nighttime? Midnight, one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning. There's a documentary about police work in Africa, in a very poor country in Africa. And one of the most tense scenes in the film is when the police force is hunting for a group of robbers that have been going around robbing different people's homes. And they finally get a clue that these robbers are camped out in one of these houses in a village, kind of on the outskirts of the city. And so the police go to make an arrest at this house, but the neighbors come outside. Pretty soon more neighbors come outside. Pretty soon almost the whole community is gathered outside. As the police are in the house trying to settle things, trying to make the arrest, the crowd outside grows hostile, violent. For whatever reason, they're taking this man's side. They do not want him to be arrested. The officers can palpably feel the tension building up, the aggression mounting towards them. So they grab the robber and they take him as fast as they can to the car. But by the time they get him into the car, the neighborhood community has surrounded the car. Bottles are flying. Rocks are being thrown. They're hitting the car, pushing the car, screaming, shouting. The police are faced with a couple of different choices. They can plow through the villagers and drive away with the criminal. They can get out and try to hold back the crowd. Seems unlikely. Or they can let the criminal go and get away with their lives. This dynamic, I think, is the reason why they come for Jesus at night. All throughout the book of Mark, the religious leaders have been afraid of the people. They've been afraid of the people. When John the Baptist called them a brood of vipers, they were not happy, obviously. But they couldn't do anything about it because the text says that the people loved John. As Jesus' ministry began to pick up steam, the religious leaders were growing tired, sick and tired of Jesus doing what he did to them, which was embarrass them. And so they looked for a way to get rid of him. In Mark 11, it says that they were, quote, seeking a way to destroy him. End quote. But they couldn't because they feared the crowds. Later in the same chapter, the religious leaders told Jesus a lie because they were afraid that if they gave the wrong answer, the people would turn on them. In Mark 12, the religious leaders began to get serious about arresting Jesus. All right, guys, for real, enough is enough. We've got to do something about this guy. And it was after Jesus told a parable against them. I love the way that Mark says that they perceived that it was about them, as if it was any way a secret. But Mark told us that they feared the people, so they couldn't arrest him right then and right there. And so they left licking their wounds. And so now as Jesus asked them, point blank to their face, why have you come to arrest me in this way? He knows and they know. It's because they're afraid of the people. And so they are doing it at night while the community sleeps. Remember this point as we move forward in the Gospel of Mark. The religious leaders are right to fear the people because they are a very fickle people and they can turn on you in a moment's notice. For now, they do seem to love Jesus very much. The people seem to be pro-Jesus, on team Jesus. We'll defend you, Jesus. We'll protect you, Jesus. But in chapter 15, which is just a few hours away in the story, Pilate sets Barabbas and Jesus before the people and says, which one do you want to be free? 
And the whole crowd shouts, Crucify Him. Crucify Him. They are a fickle people indeed. All of these details about the arrest and the betrayal of Jesus here tonight, they're good, they're important for us to understand, but they're kind of like planetary bodies in this story, moving around the main star of the story, which is the actual betrayal of Jesus. And so now we return to that, the betrayal of Jesus, the kiss of death. I have three points for you to consider about the betrayal of Jesus this morning. Point number one. Judas' betrayal was at night. Point number two, Judas' betrayal was planned. And point number three, Judas' betrayal was clothed in honor. So let's look at the first point. Judas' betrayal was at night. We just got through talking about this aspect of it taking place at night, but I think that there's more for us to see here. Have you ever stopped to consider the dark? Or to consider the nature of the dark? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it a morally neutral thing? I think most of us, if we were pressed to kind of give an immediate answer about the dark, we would say that it's like cats or mosquitoes. It's something bad that happened after the fall. Amen? But the Bible begins by saying that the earth was covered in darkness. And then God came, and in Genesis 1, he added form to the world, and he added light. He gave the sun for the day and the moon for the night. So he gave light to the darkness, but he didn't totally eradicate the darkness. And then after God finishes with this creation act, he says, and it was good. In some sense, then, darkness in this world is called good by God. And it makes sense in a pre-Genesis 3 world, before the fall, right? There's no death, there's no sin, there's no destruction, there's nothing to be afraid of in the nighttime when something goes bump in the dark. But now, after the fall, there's very much a reason to be afraid at night when something goes bump in the dark. There very well could be something there to do you harm. In our present day, it's obvious to everyone, from moms to police officers, That when sin happens, it is more often happening in the dark. South Africa is a country of many violent crimes. The terrible history of apartheid there has utterly destroyed that nation. Robbery, theft, and assault plague the poor cities of South Africa. Rather than paying for more police officers to fight this crime, which they cannot afford to do, or creating more community watch programs, which are almost entirely ineffective, a think tank decided to invest more in streetlights. This group found that the more lights a community has, the less crime would plague its streets. What they found is that it was very easy to rob a woman walking home from work with her purse if she had to walk through a large patch of darkness where the thieves would hide. But something as simple as strategically placing street lamps in various communities could deter criminals and reduce crime in that community by up to 130%. Taxi drivers are more likely to be assaulted, robbed, or to have a fare skipped out on at nighttime. 
Police officers experience exponentially more calls in late night hours, especially during the summer. Those who live deviant lifestyles tend to stay awake all night and commit their deeds of darkness at night and then sleep during the day. Pornography usage skyrockets after 11 o'clock p.m. It's obvious that what we do when it is shameful is done at night. The Bible seems to be very much in tune with this reality. It comes out again and again on the pages of Scripture. Most powerfully in John 3, Jesus says this, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. In Luke 8, Jesus says that our secrets live in the darkness. In the letter to the Corinthians, Paul says the exact same thing, but he says, don't worry, one day it will all be exposed to the light. John says that those who continue to walk in sin walk in darkness. Paul, speaking to the Ephesian Christians about their pre-conversion state, says that they all once lived in the darkness. In that same letter, Paul says that their unfruitful works when they were enslaved to Satan were works of darkness. Paul says not to partake in these works, but rather to expose them. Well, expose them to what? To the light. Speaking of Jesus coming to earth, Matthew writes that a light has dawned on men. Jesus is again and again described as light in your Bibles. His people are commanded to walk in the light even as he is in the light. Romans tells us that Jesus has removed the darkness from us. And so now we must put on the armor of light. Speaking of the light, Peter describes God's people like this. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness. Doesn't it make sense that Judas would betray his master at night? Friends, why do we, like Judas, so often betray Jesus in our own darkness? We know that the darkness is where we are most likely to betray our master. And yet we pursue the darkness. God has given us so many opportunities to walk in the light, and yet we walk in obscurity. We shrink back into the dark corners where the light of God's word and God's love and God's people can't touch us. You know, I usually know when a sheep has begun to go back into the darkness of the world before they think that I know. How did you know, Sean? Well, you stopped coming to church. Not that, you know, coming to church necessarily means you're healthy or not healthy implicitly, but the church is where God's light radiates on God's people. Whether you thought it was boring or exciting this morning, God's word was read to you, and his light was shed abroad in your hearts. Whether you loved the style of music or hated the style of music, the words of the songs we sang were saturated with Scripture and God's light from His Word filled your hearts this morning. Whether you like my sermon or not, God's Word is being given to you this morning 
When God's people gather together for church on a Sunday morning, it's where God's light shines most brilliantly on planet Earth. Every single Sunday. And so when sheep begin to go back to the world, they start pulling away from the light. They're like vampires who get exposed to it and they feel the burn and they go back into the dark corner, back into their coffin. For a true believer of Jesus Christ, even if being exposed to the light stings, they come back. I hate running. I hate it so bad. But I do it, you know? In the middle of a run, I'm like, oh, this is terrible. Why am I doing this to myself? Why am I doing this to myself? I hate it. And then next week I'll do it again because I know that it's good for me. When God's light exposes our darkness, it hurts. But for Christians, we, we embrace that. We come back again because we know that God is doing us good even through the pain of exposing our sin to his light. Friends, there is nothing that Satan wants more for you than for you to live in the darkness. There is nothing that Satan wants more for you than for you to be a part of a church that doesn't care if you're exposed to the light. He wants you to not be a member of a local church. He wants you to not be committed. He wants you to not have accountability. He wants you to not have a group of people in your life who are committed to exposing you to the light. He wants you to not be connected to a group of people who will snatch you out of the darkness if they have to. Satan doesn't want you to have accountability software on your computer because that might expose your sinful habits to someone who might actually love you and help you stay accountable. Satan doesn't want you to be meaningfully involved in the life of the community of the church. He doesn't want you to, as a matter of fact, he wants you to fear man more than you fear God. That way you're always too ashamed to confess your sin and expose it to the light where it will die. One pastor says this, if we expose our sins, Jesus will cover them. But if we cover our sins in the darkness, he will expose it. So brothers and sisters, what are you going to do with your sin? Point number two. Judas's betrayal was planned. Under American law, there are four classifications of murder. Those four classifications can kind of be further subdivided into two big classifications. One is manslaughter, voluntary and involuntary. The other one is first and second degree murder. The main differences between these two categories is one is pre-planned and the other one is not. Manslaughter, which maybe was a flare of emotion in the moment or extreme negligence, carries a much lighter penalty for taking someone's life. Whereas first and second degree murder, you could be in prison for decades to a lifetime to you could be executed. And the main difference between these two kinds of taking of somebody's life is one was premeditated, the other was not. Have you ever been betrayed before? Maybe by a friend or a coworker? Maybe by a family member. Maybe by a husband or a wife or a kid. 
It is a mixture of hurt and infuriating, especially when it's people who are close to you. I know a brother who's actually coming to preach here June 10th. He was betrayed by a pastor, and he said there was just no deeper pain that he could have felt the man that he loved and trusted so much who betrayed him. But we have to admit that there's an extra twist of the knife when that betrayal is something that is planned out in advance, when that betrayal is premeditated. In today's account, both Judas and Jesus knew that the betrayal was premeditated. It was so so well planned in advance that there was even a signal. I'm going to go up and I'm going to kiss this guy, and that's how you're going to know this is the guy that you're supposed to arrest and carry off to his death. You know, most of us like to think of our sins like manslaughter. You know, I wasn't planning on it. I didn't intend to do it. It just happened, or I didn't know. And that is true. It is so often the case. You know, if I sin against my wife in an argument, I usually didn't plan to say that thing to her that hurt her. It just kind of happened in the moment, a rush of emotion. It's also true that sometimes when we sin, it's just out of negligence. It's out of ignorance. I didn't realize that that comment to that brother or that sister would be hurtful to them. How could I have known? I'm so sorry. It's a sin nonetheless. I apologize. Please forgive me. But nine times out of ten, if we're being honest... We know exactly what we're doing. When we rush headlong into sin, when we betray our Master and Lord Jesus Christ, we know exactly what we're getting into. We know that bringing up this or that person's name in this or that setting will almost certainly lead to gossip. We know that going to visit this guy or that girl will almost certainly lead us into sexual sin. We know that going to hang out with this friend or that friend will almost certainly lead us into drunkenness. We know that watching this show or visiting that website will almost certainly lead us into lust. Are we foolish enough to think that we don't walk into our sins knowing exactly what we're doing? We've walked that road a thousand times. We're not dumb. We know that 1,001 will probably be the same thing. So maybe instead of planning our subtle betrayals of Jesus through sin, why not plan ways to put sin to death in our lives? How about instead of planning to betray Jesus, we make plans to be faithful to Jesus? One example of this that I've even experienced this week is Our brother Blaine, who's not here this morning, but, you know, our brother Blaine, he has accountability software on his computer to prevent him from falling into lust through the internet. I'm one of his accountability partners, so is somebody else in this church. Blaine is getting ready to buy a new computer for school. And as he was preparing to buy that computer, he told me and another brother in this church, make sure that you talk to me next week about getting that software on my computer, because I know that if... If it's up to me, I'm probably not going to do it. I'll probably find an excuse. I'll figure out a way. I'll just put it off until eventually I forget about it and I'm left unaccountable again and I'll fall back into sin. He was making plans to be faithful to Jesus. That's the sort of thing I'm talking about. Why not intentionally pursue communion with with Christ by 
establishing a routine for practicing spiritual disciplines in our lives? Why not just make a plan for it instead of just hoping that it'll happen? I know a pastor who recognizes that prayer is one of the main qualifications in his life as a pastor, and he knows that because of his busy schedule and because of the weakness of his flesh, he's so prone to not pray, and because of his pride, that he sets alarms in his phone that go off three times a day so that no matter where he is or what he's doing, that alarm tells him that he needs to stop and to go and to pray. That brother is making plans to be faithful to Jesus. We can't just assume that we're going to read our Bibles or that we're going to pray or that we're going to reach out to our brothers and sisters in Christ and encourage them, exhort them, challenge them, rebuke them. We can't just assume that holiness is naturally going to unravel in our lives as we kind of just go about, go about them. We have to be intentional. Why not commit to being with God's people every week, no matter what, just making that a point of your life, providence excluded? You know, just know that on a Sunday morning, you as a Christian are going to be here doing what Christians have done on Sunday mornings every single week for the last 2,000 years, worshiping God's holy name with His people. Like Judas, we usually plan ahead. But why don't we plan ahead to be faithful? Point number three. Judas's betrayal was clothed in honor. This has to do with the way that Judas, Judas treated Jesus, even as he was betraying him. In verse 45, go ahead and go back there. We see this. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. The rabbi here is emphatic, denoting kind of a character of affection. Rabbi. Like when I haven't seen one of you guys, you come to me, hey, Sean, hey, brother, rabbi, love, affection. In the times of Jesus, to kiss a rabbi was also a sign of affection and reverence. Kiss him on the hand, kiss him on the cheek. But here we see that Judas uses these gestures as a means of betraying Jesus. To call Jesus rabbi like this and to kiss him is to, with his actions, Acknowledge the lordship of Jesus. Acknowledge his greatness, his goodness, his worthiness. And it's here we learn the terrible lesson. That you can acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ while simultaneously denying him. Whether we're talking about the supposedly Christian Democrat congressman who affirms a woman's right to murder her children through abortion or a Republican president who runs on a Christian platform, but who shows in every single way possible that he is in no way a Christian. The politics of our country are built on men and women honoring the name of Jesus Christ while simultaneously denying the lordship of that very name with their practices, policies, and lifestyles. If you grew up in the Christian South, you know this reality all too well. It's full of people who call themselves Christians who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, but only do so in name. They only do so because it's socially advantageous. Brothers and sisters, those days are almost done. 
like many who came before us, it's all too easy for us to praise God with our lips, but to have a heart that is very far from Him, that leads us to betray Him. Is there something unique about God that allows us to treat Him this way? You know, to kind of pay lip service to Him, but then live our lives differently? Is it because He's not around? Is it because we don't physically touch Him and see Him every day that we get to treat Him this way? Or that we tend to treat Him this way? Maybe not, because we can do the same sort of thing with our wives, for example, husbands. We can profess that we love them, but then fail to do the sorts of things that would display that love, like washing them with the water of God's Word, praying with them, just spending time with them, making time to be with them. As parents, it's so easy to treat our children this way. To say that we love them with our lips, but then to never ever make time for them. We're always busy. It's always just a minute. Just hold on. It's always later. It's easy to say that we love them, but then to basically ignore them with our actions. As I was thinking about this sermon, I ended up thinking about Satan in the Garden of Eden. In the way that in verse 5 of chapter 3 of Genesis in the fall, Satan uses language that seems to be in line with the lordship of God. He never directly challenges the lordship of God. Well, actually, God knows that if you do this, then this and this and this. But the whole time, he is undermining God and undermining God's word, leading Adam and Eve into sin. And that's been the pattern of Satan and sin ever since. J.C. Ryle says this about sin. It will rarely present itself to us in its true color, saying, I am your deadly enemy, and I want to ruin you forever in hell. Oh no. Sin comes to us like Judas, with a kiss, with an outstretched hand and flattering words. In Luke's Gospel, we're told that Satan entered Judas right during the Lord's Supper right before the events that took place in today's text. And now we see Satan in the life of Judas doing what Satan always does, smiling, kissing, honoring, paying lip service, all the while leading his victim to death. Isn't that what sin promises you? It smiles at you, it winks at you, and before you know it, you're ensnared in its trap. Do not let sin or Satan deceive you in this way, brothers and sisters. Jesus will not be tricked by our flattery. He will not accept a kiss on the cheek or a positive word about him as a substitute for a knee bowed to him and his lordship. He will not tolerate mere gestures. He will only accept genuine worship in spirit and truth from the mouth of a person with their knee bowed to him. From the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been called the Son of God, and we saw over and over again that He very, in fact, is, very much is, in fact, the Son of God. And here, as Jesus is betrayed, we see once again that Jesus is no mere man. He isn't fooled by His betrayer like we are so easily fooled by our sin. But rather than avoid what is coming to Him, Jesus embraces it. He doesn't call down 10,000 angels to rescue him. 
He doesn't call the power of His Father to come and destroy everyone present. He doesn't even allow His disciples to pull out their two meager swords and fight it out until the bloody end, as the Maccabeans did before. He doesn't even try to talk His way out of it. Jesus tried that last week, but the person that He talked to was God. When He said, God, if there's any way, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. This week, we see Jesus take his very first step towards Calvary as he powerfully submits to the will of the Father and walks towards his own destruction. As he allows the men that he himself created and is Lord over to place him under chains and to carry him off to his destruction. Have you ever felt alone before? Like, really, really alone. Maybe as the new boss, feel like you don't have anybody you can talk to, anybody you can depend on. Maybe when your spouse was away on vacation. Maybe you were just struggling with depression and you just felt alone. Maybe you feel that way right now. Well, you should know that Jesus has been right where you are. Jesus knows what it's like to be alone. In our text today, the men that Jesus has been pouring his life into for the last three years abandon him and leave him totally alone. On the cross, Jesus was separated from the Father and was more alone than any of us will ever be. And he did it for our sake. Jesus was separated from his disciples and from the Father and cut off from this world so that you wouldn't have to be. And even now, he's calling out to you, and he's telling you that loneliness that you're feeling, that abandonment, that betrayal, all that's pointing you to the fact that you need salvation from outside of yourself. You can be united, and you can be together with God if you'll just repent of your sins and trust in him. They say that the conclusion of any talk, which includes sermons, is really important. You've got to go out with a bang. You know, you got to really drive it home, put the nail all the way in the coffin. Well, this week's sermon is going to end by talking about the world's most famous streaker. I don't know if we're going to go out with a bang, but we'll go out with a flash. Amen? You'll notice that after this fairly dramatic ending to the betrayal scene, we have these kind of two verses that just seem out of place, verses 51 and 52. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Who is this person? This unnamed person? Well, we don't really know for sure because the text just doesn't say. Why was he wearing a linen cloth? Maybe there's an explanation. But again, not really sure. Let me tell you what some people have thought throughout the years. Many thought that it was John Mark, the author of this very book, this gospel. And they thought that news of Jesus' arrest was brought to him while he was sleeping in the nude. And that he jumped up, wrapped a sheet around himself, and ran out of the house to try to go follow Jesus and see what was happening. But the crowd saw him and recognized him and grabbed a hold of him, and he was very narrowly able to escape. But they kept the sheet, so he ran away naked. How do you do application on that? 
There are a number of theories as to why this little two-verse story is included in the Gospel. It doesn't really seem like it adds much all throughout the book of Mark. If there's a detail that doesn't really drive the narrative forward, it just is kind of left out. Some of these theories are slightly ridiculous. Some say Mark wanted to write the story of his embarrassment into the Gospel to soften the blow for what Peter was about to do, deny Jesus and be very embarrassed. Some get really deep and they reflect on the shame that comes with nakedness in the Bible. And one writer says something like this, Although this young man ran away naked, he will one day be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Maybe. That seems like a stretch. Some, like me, say that they're not really sure why this is included in Mark. And they're okay with that. We have learned a lot about God and His Word this morning, and we don't have to learn everything to learn enough. We have learned this morning is sufficient. And by God's grace, perhaps what we have learned will strengthen us for the time when perhaps we are tempted to betray or deny our Master. Maybe what we've learned this morning will strengthen us for that moment so that we will be strong for the name of Jesus and be faithful to Him in our darkest hour. Let's pray. Father, your word is so rich and it is so good and it breathes life into our souls. We pray that you would help us to see ourselves like Judas, not better than him, but very capable of doing the same sorts of things. We pray that we would not be like Judas, that your grace would sustain us and keep us from falling away from you. And we pray that as we continue to worship together, that you would bind our hearts together in love so that we will be strong as we maintain faithfulness. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Please stand with me.